0: Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of dog behavior. I'm Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training. Today, I'm joined by Suzanne Shelton of Australis German Shepherds. Hi there. And Danielle Spadey of Avid Aussies. Hi. And we're talking about all things dog breeding. Um, and before we really dig into the meat of this episode, I just want to head off the inevitable adopt, don't shop sort of thing. Because um, there can be some pretty intense anti breeder sentiment, particularly on some corners of the internet. Um, generally, I think that's kind of well intentioned. It's people who are upset about homeless dogs being euthanized and they turn to breeders for blame. Bre- breeders like Suzanne and Danny are not producing the dogs that really end up in shelters. And that's because they aren't, bre- neither one of them is breeding like hundreds of dogs a year. They're super carefully vetting puppy buyers and always take the dogs back if something goes wrong. There's a huge difference between breeders like Danny and Suzanne versus puppy mills that produce hundreds or thousands of dogs per year and backyard breeders who just kind of throw two dogs together to have a litter or seven. And while many of us can find amazing dogs in the shelter, sometimes your goals or needs are specific enough that getting a purpose-bred dog from a breeder is really the best route. So please don't send us any breeder bashing hate. Let's start out with each of you guys introducing yourselves a bit. Who you are, how you got into breeding, and what your goals are with your dogs. Danny, do you want to start? Uh, Yeah, I can go ahead and start. Um, I'm Danny Spadey. I'm a native of Colorado,
1: and I actually got into breeding. I'd always wanted to breed from the time I was uh, probably elementary school, which sounds like a weird life goal, but that is what it is. Um, and I, I formally was a German shepherd person. Um, and then I got hired up at a Australian shepherd breeder and the rest is history. It's been about 10 years. Um, I'm the kennel manager for the boarding facility and I just adore the dogs. Um, my, my goals with Aussies are really to create sound mind and body Australian shepherds that aren't necessarily, um, they don't really divert from what the breed was breed was intended for, um I use my guys on the ranch. I love them as agility dogs and obedience dogs um I want structure that'll stand up uh, I just I want nice good all around dogs that make the Australian shepherd breed what it was originally um and continue that uh, instinct being one of the most important things to me and one of the biggest things I'm focusing on and and wanting to to really keep um so that's that's kind of where I'm at at this point. I've been breeding for about five years. Uh, I have five five or so litters um, under my avid prefix, and I've raised multiple litters under the my foundation kennel. Uh, the foundation of my guys Crown Point, and that's where I've been for the last 10 years, getting to know generations behind and beside my own dogs, um, knowing up to four to five generations behind the dogs that come under the avid kennel name. So, that's where we're at
2: on that. Awesome. And Suzanne? Yes, I um you know, I sort of came into German shepherds about 27, maybe 28 years ago. And we've been breeding German Shepherds for about 23, 24 years now as a as a family. It's a sort of a family thing for us. Um, I got into breeding because I was just infatuated with my first German Shepherds and how you could trace their lineage all the way back to the very first German Shepherd. And I thought that was extremely cool. And I wanted to sort of be able to continue that. And those first German Shepherds that I got that I actually used to sort of found my breeding program were very, very special dogs to me. And I wanted to be able to sort of always have a piece of them with me i didn't want to I lost the dogs they got old and and do what dogs do but I, I didn't want to lose them forever I wanted to be able to to be able to have a piece of them with me so we used those dogs to start the foundation of our breeding program. I would really sort of say something similar to what Danny said you know we would like to sort of produce German shepherds that were true to the breed's heritage um, and that can do the things that the German Shepherd is sort of always historically been able to do.
0: So um, what are some of the reasons that people might come to you guys looking for a puppy instead of going to a rescue or a shelter for their next dog?
2: So um, for German Shepherds, I think the reason that people would come to us specifically, um, instead of going to maybe a... Uh, rescue, a German Shepherd rescuer going to a shelter is, one, if they're coming to us, they're looking for traits that the German Shepherd has, um, and they want those particular traits in their dog, um, then they're, they're probably choosing us, I think, a lot because people want their um, personal beliefs around breeding to be sort of mirrored by their breeder. Um, so they're tending to look for breeders that are going to have belief systems and values that are really close to their own. And I think that that's ultimately how people sort of settle on a breeder. Yeah,
0: definitely. That that kind of matches up with my experience. Danny, what would you say about, you know, kind of why people would choose to go with you?
1: I would really, I really mirror what Suzanne said. Um, a lot of Aussies in rescues and shelters um, are, I mean, it's kind of hit or miss, just like with any breed and any dog. You don't really know the history behind the dogs. And um, specifically for my my style and my branch of Aussies, they're based on working lines. So a lot of times the instinct matters. Um, the the natural predisposition for an off switch and the way that they approach livestock is is not as solid as you would... As you would necessarily find in a shelter or a rescue, Um, and if you're taking them onto your ranch, you need something that you can trust with your stock. Um, Not very many of my dogs go to stock homes to uh, to stock dog lifestyles. Just to clarify with that, Um, but they get. A lot of times the people that are in Aussies are in Aussies for life. So you get people that grew up with them on the ranch and they want something that they're pretty used to. Um, The other reason that they would go to me as a breeder or in general to a breeder for Aussies is because of of knowing the history of the dogs. Um, There are a fair number of health issues within the breed, hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, epilepsy, epilepsy. Etc. There, there, there's that. So it's really nice to kind of essentially pick your battles. I mean, no dog comes with any true guarantees. They're, everyone's genetic. You can't, you don't get those kind of guarantees. But at least you can kind of get an idea of of what potential issues you may be getting into, um, as opposed to just a, a free a, a, a draw, essentially a random draw of what you might get if you don't know the history of the genealogy behind your dogs um, for me specifically, a lot of times I get people that want a dog. I do get a fair number of sport homes that come to me. Um, but I think that a lot of times that they come to me specifically because of the way that I raise my puppies, as well as how involved I am within the genetics of the breed and what I care about as far as paying attention to how things are inherited and, I try to do my best to be as open as possible about all of the, the warts and all, um, there's no line that's free of anything. And I think that I attract a a buyer that is oftentimes looking for that kind of, of clarity and transparency within the breed. They know that there's stuff in the breed and if everyone claims that there's nothing in it, they don't know where to go. Um, so I think that a lot of times I get people that that just kind of want to to know a lot. Um I get some really awesome dog nerds. Uh I get people that are that are really into behavior. I get people that are really into training. Uh people that care about inheritance. I get a fair number of uh of uh biology buffs and um genealogy buffs and um just various people that are really into inheritance regardless of species so i think that's that's kind of where my niche comes in but in general um going to a breeder just gives you a little more history it gives you a little more support and i'm sure for suzanne it's the same that as we're both professional dog trainers so we get people that also get more than you get it you get a trainer on your side you basically get free private lessons for life um (laughs) yeah at midnight and all. So um, it's kind of nice that you get that that support system with your puppy.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I know as someone who um, I am in the process of starting to look for my next dog um, and talking to a couple breeders right now, um, part of the reason that I have decided to go the breeder route with my next dog, and um, neither of you guys are producing the breed that I'm looking for because I'm pretty set on a border collie right now, (laughs) is because I have... A pretty long list of kind of specific things that I want out of my next dog. Um, so for our listeners who listened to our episode about um, choosing the perfect dog, you guys will remember that my list was very long and pretty specific. And um, I can find that dog in a shelter. I found barley in a shelter, but at the time that I found barley in a shelter, I also worked at the shelter. So I was um I was essentially able to cheat, you know. I found this dog before the shelter had opened and I called dibs on him before the public had any chance of meeting him. And um especially now that I'm in Montana, there just aren't all that many shelters. Um the ones that are here um are very small. And again, I probably still could find the right, you know, failed ranch border collie that I'm looking for, but I also to be perfectly honest have some color desires um, that, uh, really just limit me down even further. And, um, I did not have those color desires when I first brought barley home. So that is, um, kind of all of that really pushed me towards going towards, um, a breeder. And, um, I, the more I read about, you know, neonatal, um, hormone development and, all sorts of stuff that we'll get into a little bit more later in this podcast, the more I really feel like I would like a puppy where I know that the mother was relaxed during her pregnancy and the puppies were handled when they're two days old and all of that sort of stuff, which you just can't get in a shelter, um, you know, really at all, unfortunately. So what are some of the things that, you know, if you guys have a friend who's looking for a puppy and for whatever reason that Friend isn't going to go to you guys. Um, you know, maybe they're looking for a breed that you're not producing. Um, what do you recommend that buyers look for in a breeder, um, regardless of breed? Because I know that, again, both of you guys know your breeds very, very well, but um, I assume many of our listeners are not necessarily going to be looking for an Aussie or a German Shepherd. There are so many other breeds out there. Um, so we can start with Danny.
1: So what buyers should be looking for a breeder from the perspective of a breeder uh, um, for me and what I tell a lot of my friends is to look for a human that they get along with. That is the person that you're going to be looking to and going to for the next 10 to 15 to God willing 20 years uh, to share your brags and to have questions and concerns with. And it matters that you guys mesh and see behavior eye to eye, see behavior and temperament similarly, because your idea of outgoing might be my idea of neurotic. Um, you may absolutely love that, and I may be like, "Oh my god, that's not what I intend to produce," um, or vice versa. So finding a human that you get along with matters as much as the the, the line that you go to. Um, I'm I'm insanely lucky in the in the buyers that I have. They are they're all various flavors of dog nerd. Um, but it's, I think that, I think that's the biggest thing is really just finds a human that you see at eye, eye with and can be open with, and that you can feel the lack of judgment when you talk to them. Um, it, it makes the, the next 10 year relationship and the first five years of raising a puppy is no, no swim. It's, it's a, sometimes it's an uphill swim or an upstream swim. Um, But I think that that's, for me, that's the biggest thing is to find people you get along with first. Even if you love the dog, if you can't talk to the breeder, you probably won't go back and you will probably not be as satisfied as you could be otherwise.
0: Yeah, definitely. Suzanne, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think it a little bit. You have to ask yourself what your level of expertise and knowledge is. Um, If you're a, a A professional trainer behavior expert if you have considerable experience in the dog world you're going to be coming at this from a different angle than if you are a typical pet owner looking for a companion and you don't have a tremendous depth of knowledge Um, I think recognizing that knowing where you're coming from is sort of the important first step because it it really is going to sort of dictate your path. I think if you're the typical companion dog owner and let's say you're looking for a particular breed of dog to add to your family, I think you should sort of start your search with educating yourself about that breed and so that you have some idea what to ask people and you have some idea about what conversations you need to have. You definitely, Danny's right, you've got to be able to get along with and communicate with the breeder. And you should have a sense that that breeder is interested in you and where you're coming from and learning about you. And if that little piece of it isn't there, And you're talking to a breeder and you really like their breeding program and their dogs are beautiful or hardworking or whatever it is that attracts you to them. And you have conversations with the breeder and they don't really have much to say to you and they don't have much time for you or they have plenty of time and absolutely all of it is spent talking about things that aren't really relevant to you and they don't have time or interest in asking you anything at all about yourself or your situation, it, it may not matter how beautiful their dogs are or even how well-bred they are, because you really need to be able to talk to that breeder. And that, that's a two-way thing. It should be you being able to ask the breeder all of the questions that people have when they're looking for a dog. And those questions are going to vary considerably based on who that person is and what their needs are. And then there also needs to be a genuine interest on the part of the breeder in listening to that and attempting to understand what your needs are. If it doesn't seem like the breeder is interested in understanding what your needs are, then they probably don't understand what your needs are and how important that is depends on your experience and it also depends frankly on the breed. There are some breeds out there that it's important, I'm in a breed, where it's kind of important that you know that there's a good match between what the breeder's producing and what your needs are and if that is off, then things can really start to be out of balance and the relationship with the dog might not work out. So that goes back to that communication piece that Danny was talking about. It, there's really got to be good open communication. Um, if that's not there, then I think it's time to, to, to maybe move on to a different breeder and talk to several breeders. Um, and talk to people that have the breed. That's something, you know, it's, it's amazing to me and it's hard, like I'm sympathetic because there are very rare breeds out there that are fantastic dogs. And the average person might be like, oh my gosh, I would really, this is such a beautiful, interesting breed. I wonder if it would be a good match for me. And they might never be able to find someone in their town that has that breed that they could interact with it. Totally.
0: Yeah. I've got a a friend with a silken windhound that um, Uh, from what I can tell seems like a very, very cool dog, mm -hmm. but the only silken windhound owners... And dogs that I know are all full siblings. Like, I don't know the breed (laughs) at all. And uh, I have not seen any other than the ones that I've basically personally interacted with. Um, And they're not even the, you know, they're not a crazy rare breed. Um, They're certainly unusual, but.
2: Yeah, they're the ones I've seen are also fantastic.
0: Yeah, they seem really cool.
2: (laughs) They do. I, Uh, I loved the ones that we had in classes. Loved them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so kind of I, I think this segues really nicely into what my next question, which was going to be kind of how, how should potential buyers open conversations with breeders, and what are some of the things that you guys really like to see from potential buyers versus things that kind of turn you off or are even potentially considered red flags of um, someone who you wouldn't necessarily want to sell puppy to? And we can start again
2: with Suzanne. Well, I think if they open with a one-liner that says price, <laughs> um, that's, that's a pretty ubiquitous breeder turnoff, um, if, and a, definitely a, a turnoff for me. I think what we're looking for in the initial contact that somebody makes for us, w- to us, is one, have they taken the time to explore our website? Um, so that they, they've looked at the content that's there, so if I have you know, planned breedings up for the next year and someone contacts me and says, do you have any breeding plan for next year? Then I feel like maybe they're not real interested, frankly, in, in the breed. They're not curious, they're not interested. So I feel like they should have explored my website. They get huge bonus points if they have gone to the OFA website and checked out the list of recommended health testing and they ask me salient, educated questions about that. Like that's, uh, that's just fantastic. That's, that's really exciting to me because that tells me that this is someone who is really putting thought into this puppy they're wanting to acquire that they may have for a decade, 15 years. Um, that it's not an impulse thing. That this is something they're really, really thinking about. So those are things that, that really I like. I like it if they, if they start off right off the bat telling me a little bit about themselves. Um, I'm super interested in them and their situation and what they're looking for and what they think their needs are. So that's always very nice. But that doesn't need to be a novella of their entire life since they were four. Um, it it needs to be targeted. And then that I like quite a bit. So what what basically it boils down to is, do they seem to have some genuine interest in this breed? Have they done any sort of education about the breed? I know that's a double-edged sword, because if you start trying to research German Shepherds, you really do get stuck in an avalanche of content and it becomes overwhelming for people and they become paralyzed. Um, They don't know where to go to find sort of the basic skeleton of questions they need to be thinking about. Um, And then if they've put some thought into sort of their situation and how this might work with a German Shepherd, I also really, really am interested in those thoughts that they have. those are the things that I'm sort of looking for. If, if it's apparent to me that they don't have any of that, they're looking for a dog this weekend. Um, that's one that we used to get all the time. We don't get it so much anymore. Um, saying things like, hey, my grandma's in town and I want to come get her a puppy this weekend. Do you have anything? <laughs> It's not it's that's not interesting to me if they open with price, if they obviously don't know anything at all about the breed. Um, that's another one. I had someone who told me once they were looking for a dog that really wouldn't shed. I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to that. German shepherds don't do anything but shed. Um, and I asked her, I said, you know, you do realize they have a double coat. They shed. And She's like, I really didn't know that. I'm like, okay, let's let's go to the library and get you a book on German shepherds. Um, That sort of stuff, you know, that's that's a good opening segue. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm just going to interject here for a
0: moment because I found this really interesting. So I was hired maybe a year ago now. I was working as a freelance writer at the time and I was hired by a website to write breed profiles of every AKC breed out there. Um, which was actually really interesting for me, but it was also really fascinating and kind of a kind of a bummer of an exercise in realizing how hard it is for people to get kind of frank, honest information on a lot of these breeds mm-hmm. um, if they're just kind of trying to do quick research. And you would hope that when people are d- looking for a puppy, they're going to do more than just go to the AKC website and My Perfect Purebred Puppy or whatever dot um, <coughs> But all of these websites kind of say the same things. And, you know, like, for example, Akita's, like, every website is, you know, it says aloof, wary of strangers, requires moderate grooming. And it's like, no, these dogs shed buckets. <laughs> they're notorious for aggression. And they're massive. And they're like, aloof is a euphemism that's not really helpful in you know, in the worst case with Akitas. I'm, I know there are lovely ones out there. Um, but uh, I, I do think there's almost a problem with the internet for um, people, yeah, like pick up a book, go deeper than just the AKC website, um, because a lot of these sites, um, they're. I mean, they're honestly they're written by freelancers. I like you guys. When I was hired to write that, um, they didn't do any vetting of my knowledge before they paid me <laughs> fifty bucks a pop to write every single breed. They were, I think, lucky that they hired me. But um, go deeper than the first five results on Google. Um, well, and we call that we here. call
2: that um, mixed standards. So your mixed standard is basically your generic dog description that you hear like um, they're written by the parent clubs, but they're they're the ones they broadcast. If you ever watch the Westminster Dog Show on television and you hear these sort of same generic words used to describe breeds over and over again. You know, this dog um, is aloof. This dog is merry. This dog is um, a medium-sized dog. This dog has high energy level. This dog needs a, a strong hand and, and a lot of breed standards have these, these sort of mixed standard terms in them. I just don't find them helpful. They're, <laughs> they're, they could describe a lot of breeds frankly. And they're not in terms that people understand. People don't understand that an aloof dog doesn't like people. It's not going to like your nana running up and hugging its neck when he doesn't know your nana. She comes once a year. So they don't, there's a disconnect, I think, between some of these terms that we use to describe our breeds amongst ourselves and people that are not in the breeds that don't know what that means in in regular plain english day to day living
1: yeah and then when they apply it to multiple breeds but it looks completely different in other breeds so like an aloof aussie should look very different than an aloof akita mm-hmm. should look different than an aloof german shepherd should look different than an aloof greyhound yeah um and then they try to pull out words like aussies use reserved and right. there's not really a great definition of that. And sometimes that looks like outward aggression. It's just tamed by the time they're five or ten. Yeah. Um, and it all just ends up in the same blob of, of people just think that it's a generic dog because they use all the same terms.
2: Right. Exact, exactly right. That's a very good point. A lot of these terms, that we use aloof in the German Shepherd. And that can mean something completely different from an aloof Aussie. And that's completely different from an aloof Akita or Chow Chow.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, this is, we're kind of going off on a little segue right now, but it um, it drives me crazy. You know, uh, the, uh, the other one I see a lot of, you know, there's aloof, there's reserved, there's one family or one person dogs. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, anyway, I, I think there, the the point here is just, Do a lot of research and, um, you know, read in between the lines with a lot of those kind of buzzwords and ask yourself what
2: those different things really mean. Um, I want (laughs) to add this. This goes back to what Danny said. Ask the breeder what they mean. If a breeder says to you, you know, this stud dog for this litter, he's he's an aloof dog. He's sort of a one-person dog. Ask for a description of what that means to them. And ask them for what that would look like in my life. So I like to take my dogs, um, let's say, um, uh, walking in my neighborhood. What would that look like in my situation? So I think this goes to Danny's point about communicating is it's acceptable to ask a breeder to describe what they mean. When they say something, my sister has a beagle, and the breeder said, "Well, it's a merry little hound." And I'm like, "What does that mean? <laughs> I I don't know what that yeah. means. Um, can you can you describe what that means?" Um, so, I, it's a communication thing. Well, and there's also something interesting about kind of the more you learn about
0: behavior, the more like I would I would describe my dog Barley as almost reserved with people, but that's just cause he doesn't really like petting. You know, he's happy to go up and greet people. He's pretty waggy. He's not hiding or nervous or barky or lungy with people. Um, but he very much so doesn't like petting. But I think most people, if they looked at him would not call him that. But I, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about dog behavior, um, I'm seeing things in his behavior that I would say are less than just overly friendly. So Danny, do you have any other kind of, you know, red flags or things that you like to see from puppy buyers when they reach out to you?
1: Um, really just echoing what Suzanne said. Um, she, she pretty much nailed it. Um, really research the breeder that you're going to contact. I get a lot of, I get a fair number of inquiries that, 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 like she said, ask about the, do you have any plans? And I'm like, well, yeah, they're on my website, on the main page, you could have seen that. <laughs> um, or like, and who's this girl you're talking about? I'm like, it's on the main page and it links to her <laughs> private page with all of her information, but but okay. And I'm like, you contacted me through my website, so I know you found it, but, um, so it's real nice if you can see that they put in the effort to look. Um, my fiance breeds miniature bull terriers and that's been a fascinating change because it's such a different demographic. Like, like some of the things that get brought up in her breed are things that just floor me and mine, but how much gets asked by every stranger ever who sees one of her dogs. Um, it's like, hi, what breed is this? How much?
2: Um, <laughs> so,
1: so it's a fascinating like okay i think i've been asked that about my aussies maybe once ever and it's it was a oh that's a gorgeous dog oh it must be from a breeder oh um so so what do they usually cost they're probably expensive right no no her breed is 100% of the time the phrase is how much and it's like the second word out of their mouth um so it's it's fascinating you you need to take in demographic but i mean fair ask price but also show that you looked into the breed and looked into the breeder. Um, I don't mind if you ask price. I do mind if that's the very first thing that you're asking for. Um, I get it, we have to budget, we have to figure things out, but it's also, um, there's more to it than that. And I wanna know that we can get along as humans before I send
0: one of my puppies with you. Totally. (laughs) So I think we're we're gonna pivot into the nuts and bolts of breeding, but before that, we're gonna take a moment to hear from our sponsors. Hi guys, I'm dropping in this episode to tell you about my puppy training class. I worked super hard to create this online video puppy training class that covers everything from potty training and chewing and nupping and other, you know, kind of normal puppy problems to basic socialization and some obedience, you know, sit, stay down, all of that normal stuff. So if you've got a new puppy or you know someone who's got a new puppy, this course is a really great place to get started, especially if you're on a wait list for a puppy kindergarten class, you can't get into a puppy kindergarten class or just want something to get started on right away while your puppy is finishing up their vaccinations because it's all online. So you can find it under the courses tab on journeydogtraining.com. And we're back. So let's talk a little bit about some of the nuts and bolts of breeding. Um, And this, I think we're going to end up being quite a bit more um, breed specific here, because I know that you guys have your areas of expertise, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on all of the other hundreds of breeds out there um, that you might not know nearly as much about. Um, So, Danny, what are some of the tests and expectations that you have before considering adding a dog to your breeding program? How do do you choose which dogs you even would... um, you know, you keep out of a litter or purchase for your breeding program?
1: All right. Uh, Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, The I think one of the biggest things that I've learned over the past 10 years of working with my breeder, as well as my my line and the line behind mine is to really see what the whole of the litter is. At some point, the individual puppy is awesome but understand that you will likely be producing the siblings. So you better love the siblings. Um, If you pick the one sane puppy out of seven other crazy puppies, you're not going to end up with that one producing nicely. Um, So it kind of goes back to that old adage of the worst puppy out of the best litter is better than the best puppy out of the worst litter. and I think that that's, that's a big thing to think about. So I, I would rather have a any puppy out of an awesome litter um, and go forward with that than try to salvage something out of a different litter. Um, what I look for in the specific puppies, um, it depends on what I was looking for to improve in the breeding. Um, if like, as an example, if the dam tends on a little bit soft, I want a little more outgoing going of a puppy, one that's a little more resilient naturally. Um, uh, but a lot of times they grow into that. So it's it's kind of knowing your line and really overall looking at the litter. If I love the litter, then I should be happy if they produce their siblings. Uh, I think that that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the past 10 years that's really been drilled into me every time that I think I know better.
0: I love that. I've not heard that before. Um, and I, I really love that logic. Um, and
2: uh, that rings really true. And that rings true when you're buying a puppy too, because it is better to get a, let's say you're looking for a show puppy or a working puppy or whatnot. It's better to get a really lackluster puppy from a really good breeder than it is to get a superstar from a breeder that generally produces really poor quality.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, I think Sarah Strumming says in what, uh, said in one of her podcasts, I believe this was her, I, I hope I'm not misattributing, or she was talking about kind of how she um, starts looking for agility puppy breeders. And she says one of the things she looks for are pup, um, dogs that are way outperforming what their handler, based on their handling and training skills, should actually be doing. So um, kind of a similar thing where, you know, if you've got an agility dog who's competing at a national or international level with a handler or trainer who, frankly, isn't all that amazing, and that's not the sort of thing I'm very good at um, assessing because I'm not very good at agility, but, um, you know, that's how you know that it's the dog that's actually doing some pretty cool stuff. Um, Suzanne, how do you kind of decide, you know, which puppy you might keep out of a litter, who
2: you're going to breed your dogs to, all of that sort of stuff? Um, uh, you know, boy, we could have a podcast on that. Uh, it's, <laughs> I'm I, sure. I, think, I, I mean, honestly, we could. It's, I mean, like you take 25 years of working with a family of dogs and try to distill it into something that won't bore people in a couple minutes. So I think when I'm looking at a litter of puppies, the first thing that I'm looking at is, what am I hoping to move forward with from this litter? What do I need? If I need to improve something, or if maybe there was something in the parent that I wouldn't really like to see in abundance in the offspring, and I'm hoping to correct something, which is slightly different from improving something. I'm looking to see how that, those traits are expressed in those puppies, from what I can tell at that age. And frankly, you don't know really if you're going to move forward with something from a litter for a couple years. Um, no one should be looking at an eight-week-old puppy and hanging their hat that this is the puppy we're going to move forward with. Um, you need to develop those dogs over a couple years and let them become who they're going to be. And, and their health, too, and all those sort of hard lines that we have. So, um, I, when I ve- before I was even a breeder, I met um, a breeder named Jane Steffenhagen, who was just widely influential in this breed and was an amazing breeder. And I asked her once, because I was in the process of getting a new dog, well, how do you pick a puppy from a litter? How do you know what you're going to keep? And she said, I let all the big fancy trainers and exhibitors come and fight it out over the litter, and I keep what's left because if you're breeding good dogs and good pedigrees you should be happy with any dog from your litter it goes to what danny said which is you're going to be breeding the litter mates it is the sum total of those traits so i'm looking at this the sum total of that litter i'm also looking at the traits in every dog that goes behind it because the dogs that are behind it are going to represent how things are moving forward. If you don't know what's behind it, you don't know how they're going to move forward. And that's one of the painful things about starting out as a breeder. If you don't have the the fortune that Danny had of having this amazing family of dogs to base her breeding program on is you get lots more surprises when you start out. <laughs> but So I'm looking at the puppies. I'm looking to see if they have the traits that are apparent then that I want to move forward with. I'm looking at the balance of the litter. I'm comparing it to previous litters. Um, All of that. I'm also considering, frankly, things like color, things like gender, um, coat, all of these sort of traits that that frankly are going to be relevant a, a generation or two down the road. And then As far as actually physically adding those dogs to the breeding program, those decisions are happening around two, between two to two and a half years of age when we, for my breed, we can do our orthopedic evaluations Um, because it doesn't matter how much promise that dog had. If when I do the orthopedic evaluations at two, uh, it turns out that there's a problem with the dog orthopedically, something that would render the dog um, ineligible for breeding. So we are looking sort of at that culmination of those first two years. And then the sort of, not even the last thing, because frankly, when we get the health testing done, we add the dog to the breeding program, We may still remove that dog from the breeding program after the first litter. Um, It's just, it's all very fluid. That's um, sort of how it's going. What I'm looking for has changed. Uh, When I started out, I was much more interested in producing working dogs for sport. Um, I sort of had a period that I call my beauty period where I was very interested in producing show dogs and all my friends were showing and I really liked to show my dogs and we had that period. And um, so then at, at probably about 10 years ago, we started sort of exploring the idea of, of how to make German Shepherds that really would be adaptable to, to modern life, not just as sport dogs, but as companion dogs for people, and what does that mean, and what does that look like, and how do we make that while staying true to the breed. So I would say that, uh, you know, a breeder should have long roots. Um, they go way back, and there should be some purpose in them, but they may change. Um, As the breeder goes along and learns new things, sometimes you change what you're doing. Sometimes it's a mild course correction. Um, Sometimes it's an expansion. It just depends. Um, And a breeder, uh, going back to that communication link, boy, a breeder should be able to articulate those things to you.
0: Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so once you've decided that you think um, you'd like to breed a dog, so you know it's two years old, you've gone through the health testing, um, whatever's relevant for the breed and for your lines. Um, what is kind of next? How do you? And again, I know we're asking these questions that are like you know twenty years of experience trying to distill it into a couple minutes, but how do you pick a dog that you'll breed them to? What? How do you decide when you're doing that? Um, yeah, what sort of thoughts are are running through your head as you're moving forward, especially with kind of the first round for a for a, a new dog? Um, and Suzanne,
2: we'll start with you. OK. Yeah, I think it depends um, on two things. The first is, is this a dog that I have added to my program from somebody else's program? Or is this a dog that I've bred myself that comes from my family of dogs? Most of the time, it's a dog that we have bred ourselves that comes from our family of dogs. And in that case, I have the whole of my knowledge of that family behind me, meaning we have had hands-on every generation of dogs for, you know, five to six generations, Uh, let's say four to six generations. we know those dogs. We could talk to you about those dogs uh, just in in mind-numbing detail because they're dogs that were important to us, and we loved everything about them. And there's reasons they're in our pedigree, in the position that they're in the pedigree. So if it's our homebred dog, we're taking that entire base of knowledge. And this is something we have a problem with occasionally in the German Shepherd because we have a lot of people that buy all of their breeding stock from other breeders and sometimes they buy their breeding stock from other breeders who also bought their breeding stock from other breeders. So you can look at a pedigree and every single generation is different kennel name and there is not that depth of knowledge there. Um, This is a cultural problem in our breed where we have fewer sort of legacy breeders than we should, and it's much easier if a new breeder is being mentored by a legacy breeder that really knows their line intimately, and by that I mean hands-on, not name-dropping. And so if it's our dog from our line, we're probably going to make a test breeding with a male that we have a very good idea what we can expect from him. So he's the known quantity. And now we're going to be making a breeding based on what we expect this partner to produce with that dog. And that helps us know when we look at traits in the puppies, what we are actually moving forward with which may be different than what we thought we were moving forward with. Um, Because not all traits are as simple as coat color. Um, Well, no, not in Danny's breed, sorry. In German shepherds, coat colors are simple. (laughs) So, um, But you you understand, I think, what I'm trying to say is we're going to look at those puppies and then we're going to take a year to two years and... Be evaluating that. And then we may move to different males as we move along and we see what's actually being produced. Um, But generally, what I like to do, I don't always do this. I just recently had a first litter out of a bitch named Andy and I bred her to an outside male. Um, So, but normally, you know, knock on wood, what I would like to do is breed a new a new breeding dog to a dog that is an extremely proven breeding dog. So that if I get something wild and willy there, I have a kind of general idea um, where that might have come from. That makes a
0: ton of sense. Yeah. Danny, anything to add?
1: Not really, not a ton. Um, The biggest thing that I look for, or one of the things to add to what Suzanne had said is that a lot of times when I'm planning a litter, I'm always trying to figure out kind of where I would take it. Um, should it turn out the way that I'm hoping, where would I take it? Sometimes those puppies come out and they totally blindside you and things change. Um, change your course or do you get the litters out of the possibilities or however that works. Um, but as an example, my, what, I have a three and a half year old that's my first, that I just had my first second generation out of and I created her litter with the intent to create the one that she just had 18 months ago. And it turned out how I expected and I brought it to the boy I expected and everything went as planned. It doesn't always work that way, but a lot of times I try to figure out what dogs I also want to incorporate because I like what they've produced or I like the traits that they have. And then kind of, um, kind of back chain that kind of backtrack, figure out how to get, from where I am to be able to have a good way to add that dog in. Um, so that's kind of what, I'm, what I've am what i been doing as of recently, trying to go out a couple generations, figuring out how to get what I'm looking at back in, and then find a good path to get there should things produce the way I expect. And if not, you're always prepared to take a detour.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so once you've got puppies on the ground, um, How do you – how are you guys thinking about matching them to a buyer? It sounds like both of you really value having relationships with the buyers. But, you know, especially when you were talking about four, five, six, seven-week-old puppies, um, what are you kind of looking at and how – yeah, how do you figure that out? (laughs) Uh, Danny, we can start with you again. Uh,
1: That's a really good question, and and it's kind of evolved with each litter – At the beginning, it was a lot more kind of the nuts and bolts and a little less gut feeling and as terrible as that answer is, it's I I found that more often than not, that's really kind of what it comes down to with breeders. The very first thing is, does the buyer, would they fit with the line that I have, period, not the end, not would they fit with the specific puppy, but do they mesh with the style of dog that I make? And then we go from there. Then within the litter, I I my I don't generally reserve on sex or color, especially color, because we've got so many awesome colors that I can't. It's not fair to do that within a breed. And the color doesn't always come with the temperament you want. Um, And I will only match on sex if it is required for the household harmony of the other dogs or the other animals within the family. I know that a lot of people get real stuck on which sex they prefer and and sometimes it, it matches up with what my dogs produce and sometimes it doesn't. But oftentimes I care more about how the dogs will thrive or not within the household of other dogs. Very rarely do I ever have one one dog homes contact me. Usually there's a mix of them, three or four or two five or however many but there's it it also depends on what the temperaments of the current dogs are that's who they're going to live with more than they live with the human honestly um and i want them to be able to get along within the household or it doesn't matter how good the relationship is with the human if it's a management at all time situation um so that's kind of my first step figure out how how the sexes will work and if the cross should produce dogs that would get along with what they're looking for as a general lifestyle then I take their goals into account as well as their training history and training skill. Um, what one person can do with the dog, just like you had mentioned previously about the dogs being good in spite of their handlers. Um, is it a handler that can bring out the best of a a quiet dog or is it a handler that needs a dog that will take a little more initiative? Um, and what are they prepared to or can can that handler handle a dog that's ready to take on the world or do they need a, a little bit quieter of one? Um, once once I'm down to about two puppies per person and household that fit, if I get to that point, if there's if there are, as an example, two, I talk to the the owner, I tell them the pros and cons of all the puppies. I do my best to not label them beforehand in any in any f- sort of idea i don't want to say he's the pushy one or he's the loud one because all that stuff changes and it's just so easy to get stuck on labels that it's very hard for for puppy people to overcome that when all they get to see them is photos and videos um so then i give them the option between the two give them pros and cons see what they think see where they feel they they would mesh the best with which puppy and then go from there
2: yeah that sounds really good Suzanne. Yeah, I think it's it's similar. Um, the first step of picking a puppy for somebody for us is actually interviewing them to get a dog from our program. Um, that's people don't realize that that's where it starts, but that's where it starts. Um, one of the reasons that people choose breeders is homogeny. They may not be able to put that into words, but that should be important. So if somebody sees a dog from my program in their town, let's say, or with me, and they're like, oh, I really like that dog. That dog has traits that would work for me, and that turns out to be true and accurate. Then what they're ha- counting on is that I can assure them some degree of homogeny, that what they're getting has some general ability to be in that ballpark with the understanding, of course, that, you know, mother nature is stone cold and and learning cannot be underestimated <laughs> in its importance at all. But like generally speaking, the people are expecting breeders to produce homogeny and, and uniform quality. So if I want a German shepherd that is going to be able to have the potential to be Um, a select champion at the GSDCA National, I'm going to look for a breeder who has a long history of producing that, that consistently can produce that type of dog that's necessary for that. So we are basically helping ourselves when we interview people for dogs from our program by making sure that what they're looking for is what we produce. And most of what we produce should have homogeneity. And it shouldn't be that in one litter, we are producing tremendously wide spectrums of behavior and behavioral traits and physical traits. We shouldn't have a 40-pound German Shepherd in the same litter with a 120-pound German Shepherd. Um, so there should be some degree of homogeny within your litter and within your program. So when we are interviewing people, that is actually the first step in puppy selection for them, is Is what we produce going to fit with what they need, what they're looking for? And then we sort of narrow that down one more step by looking at the litters that we have, either litters we have available, litters that we have in the planning stage, whatnot, and going over those traits that we are expecting in that litter with the potential likes, dislikes, things that work, things that don't work for this particular Um, Client, And that's about getting to know them and having conversations with them. And that's before there's puppies on the ground. This is the sort of thing that's going on. And and you're thinking about this person that you're getting to know. And you're thinking about the traits that you have in this particular litter. And you're doing your very doggone best to make sure that those things match. Then when you get puppies on the ground, you already sort of have this, this idea that These people that you have on your short list are all going to sort of be a potentially good match for every puppy in this litter. Because, again, I am not trying to produce litters that produce radically different dogs. That's, That's not good breeding. That's just not good breeding there should be homogeny. So there's degree of traits. There's maybe, you know, if you're a show breeder, you're looking at maybe a little more fill below the eye or a slightly different angle at the upper arm. These things don't matter to most of your clients. So... I mean, they might if they want to have a select champion, but they might not, too. So once the puppies are on the ground, now I'm going to be thinking about, is there a gender need? So if the person has a female that's had an ovary sparing spay, we would only put a female dog with her. We would not put a male dog in that home. If they have a male dog that we know is not great with other male dogs, we're only going to put a female in that home. Um... If there is a size need, there's about a 20-pound difference in size. So that can be relevant. If someone is looking for an agility dog, we know that a lighter dog might be better for that. So maybe they should be considering a female. Um, So there's issues of gender. Sometimes people have a hard line. Um, I kind of feel like if their dream in life is to have a solid black German shepherd, and they, people only get to own maybe four dogs in their lifetime, some people. Like, I can't imagine that. <laughs> I, I couldn't do that. But people do that. And their dream is to have a solid black, like, who am I to say, no, you can't have that. So, you know, those all sort of, those we definitely take those things into account. Although I will tell you. That people that come to us with a list of traits that they need and they don't put a bunch of these color and coat and gender requirements are most likely to get the dog that we think is the perfect fit for them. Because they're not constraining our choice. Um, and sometimes that constraining can be a deal breaker. It can be, I'm just sorry, I, I don't have a black puppy coming in, uh, in the next year. So... There's no reason for me to put you on the list if that's a deal breaker for you. So um, one thing I will say that I really agree with Danny on is I think it's unfair if we give people the impression that we can look at a seven week old puppy and tell them what that dog is going to be as an adult. Uh, this is the drivey puppy. This is a high drive puppy. This is a low drive puppy. This is a very high energy puppy. But this other puppy over here is very low energy. When really, if we're doing our job as breeders, these things should somewhat even out. They should some, that that easier going puppy may mature out at two to be much closer in their sort of base energy level that their litter mate that seemed much more high energy. It could just be that that higher, quote unquote, higher energy litter mate is more neurologically developed. He's just more advanced. He's advanced. So um, I think we have to be careful with, with that. We have to be careful with pats and we have to be careful with giving people the idea that we can tell them what their puppy is going to be at seven weeks and that subsequent learning has no influence on that. Um, I, th- I think that's unfair to dogs and I think it's unfair to owners
0: yeah absolutely um, so I think we're going to wrap it up there um, I would love to get you guys back on at some point to do potentially a whole episode about neonatal young puppy experiences um, because I'd love that I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to squeeze that in here um, <laughs> I mean, if you have another hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's actually, it's the one area that I probably know and um, have read the most about. So I would have a whole bunch more questions, I think, there. So um, we're going to wrap it up on that teaser of the fact that we'll get everyone back on to talk about neonatal and young puppy experiences. Um and uh, you know, talk more about that from the breeder's perspective because we're we've also got a socialization episode for owners once they've already got the puppy in their home coming down the pipeline as well. Um, so before we go, um, Danny, can you tell people where to find you, and then we'll have Suzanne let listeners know where to find her. Um, you can
1: find me on Avid Aussies uh, Facebook group or avidaussies uh, dot com. Um, I'm pretty accessible via Facebook Messenger works the best. Um, service is always spotty where I'm at, as you can tell. Um, I'm, I try to be pretty open. Email's the hardest for me, but anything Facebook, you're good
2: to go. Great. And, uh, Suzanne, where can people find you? People can find me in most of the normal places. So we are on the web under Austerlit Shepherds, Austerlitz Shepherds, A U S T E R L I T Z com, Shepherds.com. We have a Facebook page that we try to be very active on. Uh, we post a lot of content there, puppy raising stuff. Um, when we have puppies and just sort of daily dog pictures and things, when we don't, um, because we like pictures of our dogs too, um, you can reach <laughs> us through that page as a message. Um, you can also reach us through, we have a German Shepherd group that um, I can't take credit for. It's me and a bunch of people that have dogs for me um, run a group called the German Shepherd Dog Network. And you can find me there. Um, and then we have a couple pages. We have, of course, the Austerlitz German Shepherd page. We have a page called Poop School for our litter box and house training course. And then we have a page called Crate School for our crate training courses. And you can reach me by email. Um, or by Facebook. Either one is fine. Uh, we do prioritize uh, animal care. Um, so it can take us a little bit of time to get back with people, especially if we're raising puppies. Um, but we're, we're pr- frankly, I think we're pretty readily accessible for most people.
0: Yeah. Um, and as someone who is in the process of contacting breeders right now, it is um, not unusual for breeders to take a while to get back to you. Um, can can confirm. (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. And that's fine. Um, Just uh, as an anxious puppy buyer, I've had a lot of like, Oh, God, did I say something wrong? (laughs) uh, Just being positive that my breeder hates me and never wants to give me a puppy.
2: Um, It's a good point. uh, And finding out that's not the case. (laughs) Breeders should be should should be sensitive to that. Um, We do try to get back uh, with people uh, as promptly as we can.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I, and I understand that. Um, and uh, it's, still, it's still hard, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, it's it's going to be worth it in the end, um, I hope. Yes, it will, um, it
2: will.
0: Yes, so on that note, before we go, make sure that you guys subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcast. You can um, like us on Facebook as well. Just search for Canine Conversations. You can find show notes with links to everything that we've mentioned in this um, episode at canineconvos.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt, owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find my blog and hire me and um, buy courses and all of that great stuff at journeydogtraining.com. You can also find um, training videos on both YouTube and Facebook. Um, and you can also follow Barley and all of his adventures on Instagram. He's at Collie Without Borders, um, just because he's adorable. And um, you guys don't get to see enough of him because um, you don't see things in podcasts. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Edie at beherd.org.uk, and our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.